Yo, in a minute with Evan Lovett, and we're here in the IM studios in the heart of LA with another episode brought to you by my friends at Cerritos Auto Square. And I hope you brought your appetite because today we're digging into some delicious LA history. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to dive right in with this pre-cap because we all know classic restaurants in LA, okay? Musso and Frank's, Dantana's, Tam O'Shantner, Formosa Cafe, El Cholo. Those are all legendary and deservedly so. But what we don't know are these neighborhood classics, restaurants with local history, local flavor, the soul of a community. And this episode, I want to focus on those. It was inspired because, look, you all know if you've been listening, I grew up in San Fernando Valley. I grew up four miles away from the oldest restaurant in the valley and never heard word one of it. And this was after going to the oldest restaurant in Los Angeles County, which is 136 years old, and I had never heard of that before. So what I'm here to do, what this episode is about, is we're going to add to the list of restaurants that are synonymous with L.A. food history. I'm talking about 10 historic L.A. restaurants that need more love. So it's time to give these restaurants the shine they deserve. And I'm excited. And I hope you're hungry because this one's going to be very, very tasty. All right, y'all. Let's get into it. Now, I always start with something that happened in L.A. this week. In addition to visiting the oldest restaurant in the Valley, which is going to be on this list, by the way, and you're going to know it because it's worth it. These are all good. But there's a continuation of a trend. Restaurants keep shutting down in L.A. This week, it was Sweet Lady Jane Bakery, Milk Jar Cookies, and the beloved institution Suhiro in Little Tokyo. They all shut their doors, all for various reasons. I'm not going to dive into that. That might be a future episode when I have some great food guests on. But the trend is a little unnerving. Look at these headlines, okay? LA Times headline, 2023 killed LA restaurants. LA Magazine headline, closing time, beloved places LA lost. Yahoo News, LA restaurants shuttered at alarming rate this year. Even a San Francisco gate got into the act with why are so many LA restaurants closing, okay? And again, look, this is going to be an uplifting episode. And this is the this is the impetus for the episode is because there has been this depressing food news, restaurant news. But I'm going to show you that there is a really fantastic world out there on place that we need to celebrate. We need to make sure that these restaurants that are going to be on the list today stay off this list of closings. Listen, listen, we're talking some L.A. favorites closed in 2023 classics. Cafe Tropical in Silver Lake. Castle's Burgers in downtown L.A. Open since 1948. Shout out to my boy Tim, my best friends ever for taking me there before I knew what was what. Great burger. Nickel Diner closed. Diamond Bakery on Fairfax, founded in 1946 in Boyle Heights, closed. Cupid's in Northridge was my dad's favorite restaurant. That one was, well, it was his birthday restaurant. I went with his buddy Ken. Opened since 1964. Closed. I mean, even Wolfgang Puck at the Hotel Bel Air shut down. John Animal from John and Vinny. That was one of the places to put LA on the national dining scene in the 2000s. I mean, La Brea Bakery, La Golandrina, the list goes on and on. Mr. O's down the street from me. But listen, we're not going to dwell on that. This episode is going to provide the antidote for all that ails LA restaurants, or at least... A tonic. I'm going to shine a light on the positive side of LA restaurants. These classic and historic places that survive decades and generations. These are workhorses. Beloved by everybody in the neighborhood. 
but not necessarily known outside their own neighborhoods. Interesting, right? So let's celebrate these places. Let's get them the love they deserve because these 10 spots are the engines that have weathered all kinds of up and downs in Los Angeles and continue to provide familiar, comforting food to those in the know. I-Y-K-Y-K. My wife has somebody who says uh, icky icky, which I just think is funny. It's cute. But anyway, seriously, this is like some if you know, you know, and hopefully now we all know. Okay. I'm leading with that oldest restaurant in Los Angeles County. It's the unassuming Saugus Cafe in Saugus, Santa Clarita Valley. Shout out to my friends at What's Up SCV. Really great people. And when I visited Saugus Cafe, I can't believe how little their history is celebrated. Like, there's no established sign. There, I mean, there is an established sign, but it has the wrong year. I'm going to get into that. There's a tiny plaque, but that's it. Otherwise, it's a standard diner with standard food. But that's fantastic because this history needs to be celebrated. You're walking into a place that began life in 1888. Think about that in L.A. terms. That is ancient. This is the oldest restaurant in L.A. County. And it started this place called Toll Free's Saugus Eating House. Like T-O-L-E free. Not like that calls toll free. And the sign outside says established 1887, but the records show that the first building in Saugus was a blacksmith shop. And outside of that was this train depot, which is what toll-free Saugus Eating House was a part of. And that was built in 1888. So it kind of goes to show the sense of history that may be lost to a certain extent. I mean, they're proud of it, but even their own history. So how can you expect other people to celebrate the history? But let's, let's tell this story. So James Tolfrey opened the restaurant as part of that new train depot for the Southern Pacific Rail Network. He already had a chain of restaurants, which I think is funny to think about. They have a restaurant chain in the 1880s. Had locations in Tehachapi, Mojave, Bakersfield. And this was part of the the, the new growth of the valley. The San Fernando Valley was finally getting uh, developed in the modern sense. And the opening of San Fernando train tunnel was basically the reason why. So this connection between San Francisco and L.A. meant stops in places like Newhall and what became Saugus, giving diners a chance to jump off for a bite at this cafe. And that's why Tolfrey had this idea. All these train stops where he'd open these little uh, eating houses, right? So he stayed there for 12 years. And in 1900, there were new owners, Martin and Richard Wood, who changed the name of the Saugus Cafe. Now, 1905, they moved the diner to the other side of the railroad, which is where it presently stands. But by the 1930s, you're talking three decades. It was already an institution. But what really kicked off Saugus Cafe in their history is it became a hub for the nascent Hollywood industry. Clark Gable, John Wayne, Marlene Dietrich spent hours there away from the set. As many of the westerns and the old pictures were filmed in the dusty areas in the ranches near William S. Hart's ranch in Newhall. So all these celebs was up there. They're filming up there. And, you know, it's a very uh, beginning community. And they're just this is the place. This is where you hang out. But by the 50s, the cafe kind of languished. Highways became more prominent. Railroad wasn't as important for commuting. Shooting was done elsewhere. But folks named Red Andrews and Bill Rolls bought the building, remodeled it into a hotel, and transitioned it into the Saugus Pool Hall. But they kept the eating cafe and, and the history and the traditions. 
But it wasn't a hit. It, it Again, I use that word languished. It just kind of sat there. And then there was ownership changes. Another ownership change. But in 1998, Gay Libby and a bartender, Alfredo Mercado. Bartender there, by the way. Two employees of the Saga's Cafe. They bought the eatery. And to this day, they're still the owners and guardians of this vital piece of L.A. County history. So look, Saga's Cafe really is historic. And it's a no-brainer that it should be celebrated because this is L.A. County's oldest restaurant. So go check it out. Look, I'm not going to lie to you. You know I'm always honest. Was the food great? No, it was not. But you're going to get standard diner food, and that's fine because you're experiencing this history. And it's a place that just give me a little bit, not even a facelift, just smooth it out a little bit. And this place can be a sweet, like, stop, get the bar. Like, Oh, man, but Saugus Cafe. So that's what we're leading with. But now we're going to a place that does have incredible food. I'm talking about Hawkins House of Burgers. Yeah, that's a unique two-story structure in Watts. It was a house. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's not like the modern-day style house. And I went when I first explored the Watts Towers. And let me tell you, <laughs> these burgers are meaty, delicious, like that old-school burger, the kind that'll make these smash burger enthusiasts break out in cold sweats. Now, the wait's long. It's like a 30-minute line. I'm not going to lie. But this is a juicy, tasty burger that's been served since 1939 by the Hawkins family. And what a story this is. Listen to this. So in 1939, James Henry and his wife, Elsie Hawkins, moved to Los Angeles from Gould, Arkansas. And they arrived in L.A. via a mule. Think about that. I don't have any details on the trip. I was reading his obituary from 1991, and like that's a pretty dope little story already. Now, James Henry found employment as a truck driver and saved enough money to purchase land at the corner of Slater and Imperial Highway to construct a two-story home. They sold malts out of the house to get some cash flow. Then they added a little market, and soon that turned into the restaurant that made these burgers that draw people in the know from all over Los Angeles. I mean... This is one of those places that if you know, you're like, yo, I'm going to spend half a day because I need to get that. I need to get that burger. And the Hawkins family is a big family. They have 14 kids. They're always heavily invested in the community, gave out thousands of hams at Easter and turkeys at Thanksgiving. And that investment was repaid during the Watts uprising. A lot of businesses were burnt out, but the Hawkins family place was left standing. It's a testament. It's a testament to, to what kind of spirit and positivity they lent to the community. And throughout the years, Elsie, the founder, would just cook, not, not even restaurant-related, just cook for the community, a long table, and just feed everybody in the community. And the reputation continued to grow and grow, especially as the smell of those burgers wafted throughout the neighborhood. And now the current owner is Cynthia, the youngest of 14 grandchildren. And she operates the restaurant with the help from her two daughters and three grandchildren. Meaning this is a fifth generation Los Angeles business. How cool is that? And those burgers are right up there. Go there. This is a destination spot. By the way, the daughters, they're named Dawn and Danielle Gibson. I didn't want to leave them out. Um, and this is the same location built in 1939. And not only are the burgers good. Onion rings are good. The pastrami's good. And this is a beacon in the community. 85 years. So it's time we show Hawkins House of Burgers more love.
Okay, coming in hot is one that I get quite a few DMs. I I know people love this place. It was unknown to me for for later than it should, longer in my life than it should have been. And I don't want to speak for everybody else, but I just, look, I feel there are certain other similar type delis that just get a lot more credit. But I'm not going to name names because who deserves the love? Eastside Italian Deli, formerly Eastside Italian Marketing Deli. This is on a lot of aficionados' lists of best sandwiches in LA. And it's kind of a weird spot when I went up there because it's it's in the corner two freeways, like the 110 and what is it, the 105? I'm not sure. I'm terrible with directions. But it's like bordered by Elysian Park, Echo Park, Chinatown, Angelino Heights. So it's everywhere and it's nowhere. And it's one of those weird places to get to. So I feel it's like the consummate if you know, you know spot. It's right there on Alpine Street and Centennial. And I feel like people don't just discover. I feel like you got to be told. And that kind of lends to the mystique, at least in my eyes. But the food there, this is like the old school Italian sandwiches. Those messy red sauce covered. The type you don't really get in a lot of places. Pastrami, meatball, pork cutlet, heavy, hardcore things. We're talking classics. There's some Italian-American culture on these light, soft, but sturdy sub rolls. But the best thing, it's run by family, and you know it's family when you're inside at the counter waiting in line. Again, there's going to be a line, but there's noise, there's action. You're like, oh my God, are they going to mess up orders? But no, they don't. They just give you what you want, and it's delicious. And it's a no-frills place because all the frills are in the sandwich. Delicious, mouth-watering. An L.A. classic that should be mentioned with all the legends. And you know that they got a legendary story to boot. Dominique Pontrelli originally opened an Italian market on the other side of the LA River, but moved his market to its current location in 1929. Again, East Side Italian Deli, 1929. That's a lot of years. That's 95 years. And this location at the time, there were no freeways, of course. And this was the heart of Italian Los Angeles. And there were Italian markets, Italian delis, local shop for their meats, their cheeses, their veggies, their pasta right here in this area. And the community grew in the 30s and 40s. So Pontrelli's son-in-law opened a sausage company and a butcher shop inside the market. That helped keep the East Side Deli alive during the Depression and kind of the post-war uh, swoon, if you will. Now, by 1959... Johnny Angiuli began to work for the Eastside Market. He began his career as a cleanup and delivery boy and eventually learned the butcher trade. So he worked at the counter and served customers. By 1965, his downtown was hollowing out. Eastside Market was the last standing of the original Italian markets and the community was changing and changing. And people were leaving. But Johnny Angiuli saw an opportunity. He hired his brother Frank as a delivery driver. He worked his way up on totem pole, so he hired his bro. And the wholesale sausage business moved on. And so did the original owners. So the Angioli brothers took over. And they continued the market. They were selling dry goods. But they were like, look, let's do what we do best. We're going to be this deli. Utilizing the cold cuts and the cheeses. And they focused on that counter sandwich service. Which is now the landmark for sandwiches. It's the way you want to order your sandwich and see in the ingredients. 
And then Johnny added hot sandwiches to the menu. And that's when things really took off. The sausage, the meatball, the roast beef, the pastrami dipped in homemade tomato sauce. And yeah, that was the core of what made Eastside Italian Deli just drop the market. And I mean, look, the Angiolis didn't run the business alone. The wives were always around. Um, their mom was around. I mean, it was a. It has that sense of family, that sense of community, and it still does to this day. And the neighborhoods changed. Let's call it what it is. And the customer base has expanded. They used to say it was construction and blue collar workers. Now it's city hall attorneys, even cops, politicians, and still the construction workers. And man, Eastside Italian Deli, when they had their 90th in 2019, they had a huge block party. But they still don't get the love they deserve because it's a fun spot. My boy Grub with Greg did a really good episode on Eastside Deli. That was the uh, uh, Eastside Italian Deli. It was the first one I saw of his, and that's actually how we connected, which is kind of funny. And there's a lot. I mean, man, Hungry in L.A., everybody... All these great creators have good episodes. I'm go check them out because the food's delicious. But more importantly, go to Eastside Italian Deli. That's a place that needs more love always here in LA. Let's make it a classic. Now, talking about a classic, <laughs> I'm going to head over to the original farmer's market for McGee's Kitchen. It's a bastion for corned beef, pickles, horseradish, nuts. And it's a story that makes me smile, like genuine L.A. style smile. I'll tell you why. McGee's was originally one of the first vendors inside Grand Central Market down in 1917. This is a family food stand that sold produce, meat, and eggs. So already we're going back to 1917. And again, now you see in the original farmer's market, you walk by it. I mean, they're not celebrating. They do celebrate it, but it should be known. I feel like these things should be known. But I got to back up. Because the story starts in 1898 when this real name, Snowdy Blanche Sizelove, mm -hmm. was born in Indiana. And she moved to Oakland by 1904 and soon Long Beach. And that's where the family market started. They specialized in marketing homemade peanut butter and homemade horseradish. Now, look, I'm a peanut butter nut, no pun intended, and... They have some fantastic peanut butter, but we'll get to that. This is the Long Beach Market with peanut butter and horseradish. Imagine that combo. I don't know if they ever did it together, but still. Two, two root ingredients. But Snowdy Blanche Sizelove married Raymond McGee in 1916. So she took on the new name. So she became Blanche McGee. She dropped the Snowdy, which was their her first name. And they opened that seven by seven foot stall in Grand Central. And they were actually there for the grand opening of the market. And business was good for two decades, raised a family. But in 1934, L.A. is expanding. And Blanche noticed farmers selling produce from their trucks in the middle of what was formerly the Salt Lake oil fields. Now it's part of the historic Fairfax district. And she thought those farmers looked hungry. So the next day she returned with a picnic basket of turkey sandwiches and coffee and started selling them to the farmers. And now that former oil field, which started to become a farmer's market, was owned by Earl Gilmore, one of the very influential people in that area, uh, era of Los Angeles. And he soon opened a formal farmer's market. Third in Fairfax, 1934, the original farmer's market, which stands to this day. But Blanche McGee convinced him that 
this shouldn't just be a market of people selling their produce and stuff. They need to include a modest little restaurant. You know, maybe, maybe my restaurant is what she said. So Gilmore signed off and McGee was the first McGee's kitchen was the first tenant, permanent tenant of the original farmer's market. Along with her husband, they opened it. Then eventually they added McGee's house of nuts. And that's a fun little place. Cause again, I'm fixated on peanut butter. I'm not kidding. We'll get into this maybe at some point in a future therapy session, but I go through in this, not an exaggeration. I've, I have receipts, one 16 ounce container of peanut butter per week. I'm different conversation, but they have really good peanut butter and their nuts are top quality, but they still have all the classic stuff. Their sandwiches, the corned beef, the again, homemade horseradish, a really cool little operation. But the part of the story that needs to be acknowledged more thoroughly is McGee's impact on the farmer's market. Check this out. The McGee's paid $100 out of their own meager earnings to bring the first electricity to the market in the late 1930s. The reason why, I mean, I'm not called selfish, but it was for their own good. They wanted to refrigerate their homemade products and connect their peanut butter machine, which was, by the way, manufactured in 1903 and still appears at the stall today. But think about that. The farmer's market electricity was due to McGee's. That's not it. They also built, again, out of their own earnings, the farmer's market's first restrooms. So shoppers didn't need to walk down to the street at a gas station. Think about that. So they're, they're bringing a sense of permanence to the farmer's market by putting in infrastructure. And lastly, maybe this is even the most important, she was the first to hand out meals, paper plate lunches, she called them. But management used to like things packaged and taken to go. But it was McGee's that fought with the management to put in the tables and chairs because people were just taking their food to go and sitting on overturned orange crates in the parking lot and eating. So she's like, why don't we just have tables and, and people could sell their food on paper plates? So think about that because the farmer's market, it's moderately touristy, um, but it's a really fun place to go and a great LA experience. And that communal eating is really part of that. And that's all because of McGee's. So, I mean... This place is heavily influential, one of the most important places in Los Angeles. And they're the oldest, 1934 original tenant, but 1917, an L.A. story that goes back 107 years and should absolutely be considered one of the most important culinary institutions in this city. All right, now we're getting to my inspiration for starting to put this list together. The oldest restaurant in my old hood, the 818. San Fernando Valley. You want to talk about unassuming. <laughs> Wendell's is a small little wooden building with low roofs. It's almost a shack. It's right there on San Fernando Road in Pacoima. And nowadays, it's a Thai restaurant. Hmm? Listen to this story. A Thai, thai restaurant that serves awesome fried chicken. And here's why. 1929, there's that year again, by the way. It was opened by Julius Masoro and his wife as Wendell's Fried Chicken House. Now, somebody DM'd me. I couldn't find the, the history of why it was called Wendell's, but apparently Julius's uncle was named Wendell. He named it after his uncle, who may or may not have invented the recipe. But regardless, they chose the location because San Fernando Road, and I did an Elliot a Minute episode on this once, is one of the most important thoroughfares in L.A., 
right? At this point, it was a major road next to a railroad with people coming from long distances on their way to LA. Well, Wendell's Fried Chicken was supposed to be the best in the West. I'm not kidding you. Like these are their newspaper clippings, right? Like I'm, I'm going to get to that. And the restaurant was open seven days a week. There was a community stalwart by the 1950s. Listen to this. The chicken was so renowned. <laughs> burglars broke into the restaurant in 1956. But they didn't rob the place. They smoked cigars, drank beer, and helped themselves to all the fried chicken. So I feel that's a testament to how good that food was. It's a terrible thing for the establishment. And it was a terrible thing for the Masoros. But it it really goes to show about that chicken. And... It actually did close down for a little bit after that, but it had a grand reopening within a few months. And the Masoro stayed on, but by 1971, they sold it to the Rostin family, who kept running it as Wendell's Chicken House for 13 years. Sorry. Yeah, for 13 years. But in 1984, they sold it to a family that changed it to what it is today, a Thai food restaurant. But guess what? They kept the original name, Wendell's. And more importantly, they kept the original fried chicken recipe. And it's their best-selling dish. And it's good. And you know I'm a pioneer guy. I like Gus's too. I got to give him a shout out. All the hot chicken. Dave's hot chicken's awesome. Hot motherfucker. But just a true OG fried chicken. Mm, it's delicious. But it's so funny because this place... Looks like something out of the past. Like you can tell this building has not been updated. And again, I live friggin' four miles plus from there my entire life. Never knew there was a restaurant from 1929 still standing, still serving food, still serving their original dish. These are the type of places that we really have to celebrate. And even as Pacoima's changed and LA's evolved. This is one of my favorite L.A. stories because what is more L.A. than a 95-year-old fried chicken restaurant that's actually a Thai food joint? I love it. So go check out Wendell's if you're in Pacoima or anywhere close by. Next up is the oldest Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles. That's another. Again, this story is just, it's one of those ones that touch your heart. Not El Cholo. Not any of the spots on Olvera Street. Not El Coyote. Those are all respectable, love, like love all those places, totally places. But the one that needs the love is Mijares on the outskirts of Pasadena. I was there again recently. They're great people, by the way, not just great food, but not only is the food delicious, but the patio atmosphere is lively. The servers are great. The staff is warm and welcoming. And look, this is the classic American Mexican food spot. You know, I'm not saying like, oh, these are the flavors of Zacatecas or the Yucatan. Like, no, it's it's American Mexican. Let's call it what it is, which, by the way, needs to be its own separate cuisine and considered as such, at least in my opinion. Delicious combo meals. Bring them on. Enchiladas. I'm here for it. <clears throat> and this history. Again, listen to this. So, Jesusita Mijares immigrated to California from Guadalajara in the early 1900s with her husband, Juan Benavides, and their infant son, Joe. They went to work initially on the railroads in Northern California, but Juan passed away unexpectedly and she was disparaged and despondent. She wrote to her two sisters who encouraged her to move to the Mexican colony of Pasadena. Now, this was a neighborhood right near Fair Oaks and Pico. 
And it was where Mexican families came in 1911 to escape the Mexican Revolution. And again, I there was an Elliot Minute episode on the lost Latino neighborhoods of Pasadena, which is really fascinating because I never really looked through Pasadena through that lens. So it really has a deep Latino, specifically Mexican history right there in Pasadena. Who knew? But back to Jesusita. So she gave birth to two more children. She was caring for her family. And this is down in the Mexican colony. And by 1920, just caring for her entire family to make ends meet. She made tortillas by hand and sold them door to door. And now this was a really good tortilla, delicious, homemade. I mean, you know how that is. And they started growing. She started growing the business. She still sold the handmade tortillas to local grocery stores, local other Mexican restaurants. And it's a good business, but not a huge business. So she was taking in borders to supplement her income, an original Airbnb style, if you will. But all those people were staying there would smell the food she made and saw the homemade tortillas. So within a couple months, tables were spread throughout the house and outside the house to accommodate the growing number of temporary residents and, and guests that would just come by to eat. And as the tortilla business expanded, she continued making these meals and she mixed in traditional Mexican dishes, tamales, menudo, served every day. And by 1940, the business flourished to the point where she moved it out of her house to a location on Palmetto Drive. And by the time the tables were added and the rooms were built, the patios were created, hundreds of guests came in daily. And Mijares already in the 1940s started becoming that community institution. Now, by 1979, the unthinkable happened. And the family restaurant was destroyed by fire. So, they were determined to continue what Jesusita started. So her daughter, Alice Mijares Resendez, worked hard to rebuild the restaurant. It was completely rebuilt by 1984. By 1988, tragedy struck again and Jesusita passed away, but not without a legacy. And Alice became the family matriarch and she passed that torch to Mary Resendez, who owns the restaurant today. Not only does Mijares still make some of the original recipes of Jesusita from over 100 years ago, but this is an integral L.A. American dream story, the oldest existing Mexican restaurant in Los Angeles. And again, I'm in touch with the family. I've covered the story, and this is really nice people. Mijares is a true asset to Los Angeles, so I'm asking, I'm telling Put Mijares up there with El Cholo. Put it up there with El Coyote. Put it up there with Cielito Lindo because this is a true legendary spot in Los Angeles. Now let's flip it to the West. We're going to go all the way West now. Go to the oldest bar in Los Angeles. This really surprised me. I, I like, look, if anybody out there could disprove this, I'm open. I'm, I always want to be accurate. I, I kind of can't believe this is the oldest bar in Los Angeles, but it is. Big Dean's right there on the Santa Monica boardwalk, hiding in plain sight. I've been to Santa Monica dozens of times, honestly, maybe a hundred times. I'm not, I went to UC, I mean, seriously, I've been to Santa Monica always. And aside from the fact that the sign does say world famous, man, look, I'm just being honest. I never heard people be like, let's go to Big Dean's. Let's meet at Big Dean's. Because this is an if-you-know-you-know know spot, and with good reason. The history of this bar is filled with some if-you-know-you-know you know stuff. Check this out. 
was originally opened as Loring's Lunchroom by a man named Charles Loring before the Santa Monica Pier was even developed, the modern Santa Monica Pier. And it was just right there on a boardwalk, nice strip near the beach, great location. And Loring's Lunchroom was a small food stand. Served hot dogs, which, by the way, they called hot wiener sandwiches. I kid you not. There's an extant picture of that. So is a hot dog a sandwich? Loring thought so. They served egg sandwiches, ham sandwiches. Another simple fare to beachgoers and fishermen. Again, Santa Monica wasn't really developed yet. So it wasn't like, oh, Santa Monica. It was just like another neighborhood. Here's what's crazy. There's only one existing photo of Charles Loring. It's with his wife and baby. And I got no other information on him, on the family, on the development of that place after it happened for the next decades. This is a really big like hole in the information circle. It's crazy. But there are records of a Loring's lunchroom in Boston and in Cincinnati by the end of the 19th century. And the menus line up. But I could not confirm if those were indeed related to this Charles Loring. If he just simply was moving west and Opened a restaurant here, worked or didn't. He moved to the next one and then ended in Santa Monica. But either way, by the 1920s, the business was sold to a man named Bill Johnson, who operated the restaurant under the name Larings. He changed the L-O-R-I-N-G to L-A-R-I-N-G. But that was his big change. In the 1930s, the business was sold again. Here's where it comes in. A couple named Dean and Betty Cooper. Now, they renamed the restaurant Dean's. And continued to operate as it started to become a little bit more popular, especially for locals. Now, by the time the 50s and 60s rolled around, this is when we're starting to get our moment in the sun. Surfing was popular. Gidget was out. L.A. culture. They renamed the restaurant World Famous Big Dean's Muscle Inn Cafe. And it became a gathering place for surfers. And you see it. It's right there on the beach. It makes all the sense in the world. But get this. In this era, I couldn't believe it. Between the the Santa Monica Pier and Big Dean's, world famous Big Dean's, was the original Muscle Beach. Yeah. The one that's in Venice. Ended up moving to Venice. I found that fascinating that Muscle Beach was on Santa Monica first. And they they just moved it. So, there's... An element here of perhaps why the history doesn't exist. Because in the 1970s and 1980s, after the surf wave crashed, at at least for Big Deans, it was known as, quote, splendidly seedy, a haven for biker gangs and a place you didn't want to get caught at after dark. Right there on the Santa Monica boardwalk. I would have liked to see that neighborhood, that area, that vibe at that time. And during the day, as the 70s turned to the 80s, it was a haven for roller skaters and roller skate culture started really popping off. But at night, they sold 60-ounce pitchers of beer for $7, which made it a popular hangout for Hell's Angels and Satan's Slaves. So it was that kind of spot that they probably didn't want me types talking about a lot. So that's under the radar. But look, you can't keep me from the history now. And thanks to Stan Surridge and Dave Lewis, who took over in the late 80s, they cleaned it up. They started sponsoring local softball teams, volleyball teams. 
And they began running ads around the time of the Rose Bowl, especially in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, the teams that were going to make the Rose Bowl, inviting fans from those frozen climates to come warm their toes in the Santa Monica sand during New Year's. So they totally pivoted, as you will, if you will. And now it's it's more refined, but it still maintains that charm. And they do a good job of making it feel a little bit old. It's got the wood paneled walls, nuggets from their history, menus, things like that. And it's almost downright charming. But most importantly, it's a great place to grab a beer and a place with a massive L.A. history that probably isn't as well known as it should be. I mean... We're talking 122 years. Big Dean, Santa Monica. I'm going to stay with the bar theme because there's another bar that also serves little little dishes, little sandwiches. But you're going to head south on this one. We're going down to Long Beach. And this is, now this, some people in Long Beach are going to be like, what do you mean it needs love? They get so much love. Joe Jost's in Long Beach. That's right. It is well-known and beloved down there. But again, the history, this should be on every, you know, hey, Eater LA, put this on your 38 Essential LA eateries because, again, this is just classic and good history. It's sitting on Anaheim Street just south of Signal Hill. And this is an old-school pub and pool hall. It's got this, you walk in, you feel the history the second you walk in. And then you keep walking and you see the pool hall in the back. And you're like, oh, this place, they don't make places like this. They, they, they just do not make places like this anymore. It feels every bit of its hundred years. The last 90 of which they've been serving food and alcohol. And now this is a definition of a local spot. Maybe I'm going to get some DMs for, for blowing it up or something. <laughs> but it's the kind of place where an outsider like me can come in, order a pint and a sandwich eat a pickled egg, I'm going to get to that, and just be regaled with stories of Long Beach from the oil boom to today. Now, this place does indeed embrace its history. And the history of Joe Jost. And somebody told me it's Joe Yost, okay, the real pronunciation. I thought it was Joe Jost. And again, I'm terrible with pronunciation, so somebody DM me, correct me, but I hear it called Joe Jost. I hear it called Joe Jost. Sometimes people just call Jost. But Joe Yost was born in a small Hungarian town called Istrinfold, now in Yugoslavia. And when he was 12, he was given the choice of becoming a priest or getting a job. So he chose the latter. He went to live with an uncle in a nearby village to serve an apprenticeship as a barber for four years. He immigrated, American Dream, Ellis Island, New York, and somehow ended up in Upland, California in the 1910s. Met his future wife and worked as an insurance agent and enlisted in the army. Sounds like, man, the L.A., I mean, the, the, the American immigrant story. And in 1920, though, it's when he truly found his calling. He was back home from the army. He opened up a place of his own, Joe Jost's. But this was located on Main Street in the Balboa Peninsula of Newport Beach. And he sold candy, ice cream, cigarettes, and near beer. Don't forget, this is during Prohibition, so he couldn't sell alcohol. And opening a speakeasy was only for the underworld mafia types. And he hustled for four years in Newport, but by 1924, he sold it. And he established the new and current Joe Jost's on Anaheim Street as a combination barbershop, pool, and poker emporium. That's right. 
He still sold sundries, corncob pipes, razor blades, headache remedies. But it was when Prohibition was repealed in 1934 that he started to serve beer in addition to some sandwiches. And that's when the beloved Joe's Special was invented. This is crazy because this is the most simple sandwich you're ever going to eat. But when you're drinking it with a big old schooner of beer, you realize why this is special. It's a Polish Polish sausage, sausage split. And this is a family recipe. A slice of Swiss cheese and a pickle and mustard on rye bread. And that's it goes so well it's like something crazy like 275 even still and people loved it they love the sandwiches they love the big old beers and he also started to sell these pickled eggs on a mound of pretzels and chili peppers and now the pickled eggs have become as much as a joe joe's calling card as the sandwiches but he would also sell fresh eggs slab bacon but the barbering commission soon hit him and they said, Joe, it's too dangerous to cut hair when alcohol is being served and consumed. So he said, you know what? I'm done with barbering. Out went the barber chairs. In came the engraved booths, which classed up the joint and added an element of privacy for the paying customers. And it thrived as a pool hall. And then it thrived as a poker club. And by the time his son, Joe Jr. took over, it became similar to what it is today. A neighborhood watering hole welcoming Long Beach denizens of all types. It's funny. I talked about that vibe earlier. I know that words overplayed the atmosphere. But there are no plates. There's no flatware. Your food is served on paper trays or wrapped in paper parchment. It's dope. I mean, this place really is classic in the truest, truest sense. And it's 100 years old this year. So this... Joe Jost, I know you get love in Long Beach, but you need the all of L.A. Long Beach. So if you're from L.A. or anywhere in Southern California, you know Cerritos Auto Square and their famous slogan, they sell more, so you save more. Well, get this. A new documentary is coming out. It follows the creation of this SoCal institution, Cerritos Auto Square. And I didn't realize this, but it's the largest auto center by annual sales in the country. The documentary starts at the beginning when the area was all dairy farms. You know how I love to look back on Southern California history and its evolution. And I didn't realize how much work and innovation went into creating the world's largest auto center. I'm actually surprised at how interesting this documentary is. There's a ton of historical footage from old Southern California, and you know I was loving every scene. So in keeping with the theme World's Largest, they're hosting the World's Largest Red Carpet Movie Premiere in California. The free movie premiere will be held at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, February 22nd at the amazing Cerrito Center for the Performing Arts. Attendance is free but it's limited to the first 1,600 registrations. So make sure you secure your ticket at CerritosAutosquare.com slash movie. Again, the free movie premiere will be held at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, February 22nd at the Cerritos Center for the Performing Arts. Free tickets can be secured at CerritosAutosquare.com slash movie. I'll see you there. Okay, let's, let's jet back. Let's go north. Going to Burbank now. Spot with a facade that looks like it's straight out of the movies. And a concept that is one of a kind in Los Angeles. I'm serious about this. Somebody tell me if I'm wrong. 
I'm talking about Chili John's. <laughs> now this is, yeah. It's built in 1946. So it's actually the newest restaurant on this list. But that's still, what, 78 years. That's still a great run. And it's the oldest restaurant in Burbank. But get this. The original Chili John's opened in Wisconsin in 1913. But the dopest part of this? The chili recipe came from actual cowboys on the wagon trail in the 1890s. Another American dream story. This, Listen, the story starts with John Isaac, a Lithuanian immigrant. He immigrated to Wisconsin in the 1890s. By 1900, he opened a saloon, served beer, whiskey, and something called lemon icebox pie, which, by the way, Chili John still serves, and it is good, especially after the chili. Served the chili on spaghetti as his custom there. But he achieved local fame because his chili was so deep, so tasty, so resonant. You, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is really, really good chili. That he acquired the name Chili John. This was a 20-hour recipe. But his hard work paid off because by 1902, his saloon became an icon in Green Bay. And he trademarked the logo and script, the same one you see today in Burbank. And by the 1930s, his son Ernie and his wife and Ernie's wife helped run the restaurant. But here's where it becomes an LA story. Ernie's wife developed tuberculosis. Okay? John Isaac's daughter-in-law. And they moved out, as many did, to the warmer climate of Los Angeles to help her recover. You know, the air of Los Angeles, Los Angeles health tourism. They wanted to continue the family legacy. So they opened one of the first two buildings on Burbank Boulevard. Chili John's in 1946, which has a U-shaped counter, an old school register, and a mural of the Old West and a wagon train on the wall. Which, by the way, all of those things still exist today in their original form at Chili John's. And that's what adds to the mystique of this place. Then you want to talk about mystique, maybe a little bit of luck. Walt Disney Studios happened to be in Burbank, especially after he moved from his cramped Hyperion offices. Snow White won all his Academy Awards and all this stuff, and they just blew up. But they chose, chose Burbank to build a studio. Well, guess what? Walt Disney himself stumbled upon Chili John's and became a huge proponent, spreading the gospel to other Disney employees and their families. And you think that seal of approval, that, that, that's an original beyond influencer. But another celebrity proselytizer was John Madden of Raiders coaching fame and later TV announcing Hall of Fame and video game. That the guy behind Madden, he was a huge fan of the Green Bay location. Would talk about it during games, interviews, and he would always make a show of like stopping there when he was in town. Remember, he used to have the RV, so he was on the road, eyes on the ground. He got it, and it helped the chili business thrive even in sunny Burbank. So. I mean, this place has been touched by magic throughout the years. And what the heck? A chili restaurant. I'm telling you, I passed by, passed by. I'm like, I got to try it. How is there a restaurant that just makes chili? Look, LA's the home of chili. Tommy's, Pink's, Cupid's. The list goes on. But this is like just chili or chili on spaghetti. And the spicy chili is so good. And they have these little oyster crackers. They may or may not have invented them. That I wasn't able to verify. But there's a claim there. But... Regardless, in the early 2000s, the restaurant was sold to Gene LaGuercio. And he kept the restaurant the same. And even when he passed away 10 years ago, his wife, Debbie, and his sons, Anthony and Alex, run the place. And let me tell you, 
the spicy crimson chili with that little ladle of like oil that makes it so delicious especially when you turn you got the raw onions and the cheese and the oyster crackers and again it's not the place you're gonna go on a date but this place is gonna really make your stomach happy at least while you're eating it so give chili john some love now i'm gonna close with a place that's a little bit outside la but it's a place with a legacy a very strong legacy for Los Angeles and the world. It's right off the 210 in San Bernardino. So it's a straight shot. And my in-laws live out that direction. So it's actually like a quicker drive than someplace in LA. But regardless, I'm talking about Meat La Cafe. Founded in 1937 by Lucia Rodriguez and her then husband, Vincente Montano as an important gathering place for the Latino community in San Bernardino, which was segregated at the time. But community leaders needed a place to exchange ideas, eat, and relax. And now, the reason Meat La Cafe needs love, not only is it great, and I will get into those details, but Meat La is the reason why the hard shell taco became so prominent in los angeles i mean everyone from tito's tacos to um to henry's tacos there was a whole onslaught of crunchy taco place in la in the 50s 60s but they came from meat law cafe and i'll tell you why meat law used to get lines around the block for their tacos dorados 10 cents a piece simple good crunchy and something the American palate could relate to. Remember, Mexican food was still, you know, a little bit ethnic, a little bit foreign at the time. But maybe the American palate related a little too well because across the street was Bell's Burgers, owned by Glenn Bell. Now, Glenn Bell was tired of seeing lines around the corner of Meat Lock Cafe and no customers at Bell's Burgers. So instead of getting mad as he had been for previous months, he walked over there one day to try the tacos. And the light went on. He said, oh my God, I'm going to make my own, but I'm going to make them even more so for the American palate. So he tried his hand in the taco business. Taco Tia, Taco Maria, and eventually Taco Bell. Yeah. Bell's Burgers was right across the street from Meat La Cafe and there would not be Taco Bell. There would not have been a wave of crunchy tacos in L.A without Meat La Cafe. And it's it's funny because Meat La Cafe isn't just about the crunchy taco. It's good Mexican food. It's a good environment. They got a, this dope area again. Like you got music, you got decor, you got good servers. It's just a fun, good place. But regardless of Bell's copycatting, Lucia remarried somebody named Salvador Rodriguez and they expanded Meat La Cafe and they grew. And along with help from her children, Teresa, Helen, Vera, and Frank, Meat La Cafe became a community staple continued through the 60s, 70s, 80s in the west side of San Bernardino. It served celebrities, local dignitaries, politicians, people from all walks of life. And you want to know how important Meat Lock Cafe is in the community? Cesar Chavez, when he would come down to San Bernardino, would lead his community meetings inside Meat Lock Cafe. So, I mean, we're not blowing smoke here. The food is good and the place has a history that needs to be celebrated. And Lucia passed away in 1981 stayed in the family. Her daughter Vera took it over and then she passed away. And then Frank, along with his wife, Irene Montano, ran it until 2013. And now 
Lucia's youngest grandson and great-grandson own the place. Again, four generations. San Bernardino, but Los Angeles. The Hard Shell Taco. I mean, it didn't come from Mila Cafe. It's been around forever. But that's the reason why Los Angeles and the world went crazy. And that's the reason Taco Bell exists. And today, Mila Cafe is still bustling. It's the heart of the Latino community in San Bernardino. And the history is worth the trip and the celebration of food culture in LA and beyond. So those are your 10 historic restaurants in LA that need more love. Now, as far as what to do in LA this week, it's pretty self-explanatory. I gave you a culinary to-do list, but what I want you to do, what I specifically want you to do, go discover a place in your neighborhood that doesn't get enough love. Eat there, soak in the history and let me know I want you to send me a DM. I want you to send me recommendations. I want you to comment on my Friday Instagram post. What are the places that you love that are celebrated in your neighborhood that need more love? Every neighborhood has a taco spot, burger joint, coffee shop, a diner that's a landmark to people in the know. But let me know. And I'll tell LA in a minute, in a minute with Evan Love at any platform I have. Because we're all about showing love. And in a time like this where restaurants are shutting down and the headlines are so negative about the restaurant business and industry in Los Angeles, let's show some love and get these places some business. Get out there and be a tourist in your own town and have something delicious while you're at it. Take a picture, share the history, ask me to go find the history. That's what I do. And let's continue to give love to these institutions that deserve it. So that's what you're going to do in LA this week. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. I hope you had fun. I hope your appetite is worked up. And I hope you're ready to celebrate these classic LA restaurants or any neighborhood hangouts with a little history, culture, and soul. I appreciate you being here and I thank you for listening. And as always, I ask that if you enjoyed the episode, click the five-star rating. Every single one of those is super helpful, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Overcast, Odyssey app, whatever you're using, Audible. Did I say that right? And if you have 30 seconds, leave a review. It's really big time for me. And the most recent review is always featured on, on Apple. So it's kind of cool seeing your name in lights like that. It's big time for the show and it helps me get more organic exposure. So thank you very much. Have a great week ahead. Have a delicious week ahead. Thanks for listening. Date a minute. Have and love it. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.